Hi, I'm Matt Pacilli with the Virginia State Golf Association, and welcome to our Golf in the Commonwealth podcast. These episodes, again, are meant to be an opportunity to hear fun conversations with people involved with the game at all levels across Virginia, and I hope you find this to be the case. Uh, This week, we're sharing a conversation that I had with Dr. Bob Rotella in the fall to use for our annual meeting video. And you can see that video over at our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash VSGA1904. I mean, Dr. Rotella doesn't need much more of an introduction. I'm sure most of y'all have read or at least heard of his books like Golf is Not a Game of Perfect or Putting Out of Your Mind. I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Rotella mostly around things centered about golf during the pandemic, but we did cover some other golf psychology types of things and how he got into golf and things like that. And that's what we've included in today's podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Bob Rotella. How did you get into golf? Uh, Totally by accident. You know, I was a lacrosse coach and basketball coach. And my first year at Virginia, I was given a talk to basketball coaches in Madison Square Garden for coaches from New Jersey and New York. And someone from Golf Digest editorial board happened to come. And they loved my talk and asked me if I'd go to Orlando to Disney to a Golf Digest advisory meeting that was Sam Snead, Kerry Middlecoff, Paul Runyon, Bob Toski, Jim Flick, and Davis Love, and asked me if I'd give an hour and a half presentation. Two days before the talk, which I agreed to do, they called me to warn me that Sam Snead would probably rip me to shreds because he'd probably be old school. And I remember thinking, God, great. Because <laughs> other than caddying and playing golf maybe four times during the summer, I didn't play golf much. And I was in the team sports. I gave my presentation. As soon as I finished, Sneed stood up. And I, I remember thinking, well, here it goes. And Sneed stood up and basically just spilled his guts out. And the first words out of his mouth was, I hate to think how many U.S. Opens I would have won if I had you to talk to. And he went on and told a story about blowing his first chance to win the Open. I think he was like 19 years old. And he was favored. And he messed it up on the last four holes. And he said, I carried that with me the rest of my life in every Open I ever played in. He said, it didn't affect me in other tournaments, but in Opens, I just decided I blew my best chance. I probably never was going to win one. And he poured his guts out, told a whole bunch of stories about his head and the role of the mind and emotions in his game and how it affected his putting. And, well, as a result of Snead opening up, everyone else started talking about it. And I've always said, if Snead had said... That's the most ridiculous bunch of malarkey I've ever heard. I, he was the best player there. I, I don't think anyone else would have said anything. And that led me to doing some work with Golf Digest and th- with their staff. And then they had me do some work with their instruction schools, which were very popular at the time, and had a great staff. And that led me to working with some of the players they were working with and they immediately started winning tournaments. And what happened was, you know, it was like Tom Kite. Peter Costas asked me to come to Doral and work with three of his players, which was 
I think it was Tom Kite, Gary Koch, and Roger Maltby. And I might get this a little wrong, but basically Kite made a 40-footer on Sunday of that week to beat Nicholas, um, which was a huge win for Kite at the time. And like the next week, I think Koch won. The next week, Kite won again. The next week, Maltby won. And then a few weeks later, uh, David Ledbetter called me up about working with one of his friends that came with him from Zimbabwe to America. Um, you know, Nick Price came with him, David Ledbetter, and uh, Dennis Watson. They all left. And when you left, you had to leave everything you owned. You could take $1,000 or something like that. And he said, Dennis has five weeks left um, to make it was either fifty dollars or $60,000. And if he doesn't, he loses his green card and has to go back to Zimbabwe. And so I didn't even charge him. He just came for two days, and I had a ball. I was like, yeah, this is cool. And uh, he spent the weekend with me, left my house on Monday night, and beat Marco Mira in a playoff to win the Buick Open. And I remember thinking, wow, that was cool. And uh, Dennis called me up after he took a week off and said, uh, can I come back? And I, yeah, come on back. And I remember I set him up with one of my grad students on a couple dinner dates. And he stayed for three days and left my house and won Las Vegas. And then I went to Sun City with him for the Million Dollar Tournament. He was named Sportsman of the Year. And, and then Pat Bradley came and saw me and she took off and just started winning everything. And then just word of mouth pretty much led to a career in golf, which I would never have expected. I mean, if anyone had told me, I mean, my dad was a barber in Vermont. Um, we certainly weren't country club people. Um, you know, most of the kids where I grew up with played team sports. Uh, the kids who weren't able to make the football, basketball, and baseball team, which are the only sports you played in high school then, um, they pretty much played golf and they skied. <laughs> and so I, you know, other than caddying, but I was fortunate. I caddied for Bobby Locke quite a bit. Bobby Locke married a gal from my hometown and he would spend several weeks in Vermont. And I grew up next door to the caddy master who was like two and a half years, three years older than me. And I was a good little athlete. And so he always got me the best loops. And so I got to caddy for Locke a lot, which was a neat experience, but he had such a non-athletic body on him that, you know, I was never like overly impressed with his athleticism, but he could really shoot low and, you know, he won four British Opens. And... Anyway, so that was kind of my interest in golf. Um, and I, you know, when I got out of college, I played a little bit, but when I was going to grad school and coaching, I didn't play at all. And I said, no, no, maybe twice a year I went out and played. And then I played tennis for 10 years. And then after I got tenure at Virginia, I started playing golf. But that was after I was working with players. I was working with players long before I ever started getting, going on a quest to see if I could get better at golf. But anyways. Yeah, at the time that you're working with tour players, yep. it sounds like you're not personally playing that much. You know from the research and from the applications that you've seen that it's making a difference, but you're not necessarily coming at it from the perspective of this has happened to me. Is that Definitely not. No, I was lucky. I, I had a cousin named Sal Soma, who's a head football coach at Newdorf High School in Staten Island, New York. 
And he was like Lombardi, one of Lombardi's best friends. So they did coaching clinics for years together. So by the time I was in fifth grade, every time he'd come to Vermont to visit, all I would hear was stories about attitude and this Lombardi guy they did clinics with, which got me interested. Um, then I was the quarterback at a Catholic high school. I was a pitcher in baseball. And, you know, I was a captain of the basketball team. And so when you were the captain of all those teams, you got to spend a lot of time in coaching offices. And all they ever talked about was attitude and team building. And, you know, it was like, are you a gamer? Are you a practice player? Um, so, I mean, I heard a lot about attitude. And so it was pretty clear to me that attitude was a big, important part, even though the public didn't talk about it. And, you know, then you started reading about it. and More coaches were talking about attitude all the time. Um, didn't get much TV coverage. And uh, then I started, when I went to college, I, our basketball coach my freshman year brought a busload of kids from an institution. You know, now we call them special needs kids. And we were going to teach basketball skills every Friday for the last hour and a half of basketball practice. And I quickly fell in love with it. And they had had a drowning at the institution. And they were getting ready to start a swim program, an instructional program. And I had a WSI. And so I got hired to start an instructional swim program at this institution. And I just loved it. And we started going to the Special Olympics, and so I was coaching kids. And people asked me, I said, well, I'm coaching kids at the pro level the same way I was coaching those kids at the institution to see how good they could get. And they were pretty easy because most of them, they lived in the institution. Most of them didn't know their parents. Parents like dropped them off, and that was it. And so they had no one telling them they couldn't do something. And all I was told is they were mentally slower than other kids. So no one said to me they're physically slower than other kids. So I was teaching them like I'd teach normal kids. And I did that for five summers. And then I took a job there teaching for one year. And that led to the University of Connecticut coming and doing an evaluation. And they told me they had never seen anybody get special need kids to do the stuff I was getting them to do. And I was like, really? You know, that was news to me because I didn't have any training in it. And they offered me a scholarship. But I was coaching at my old high school. I was coaching basketball and playing lacrosse uh, for a club team, which was my league lacrosse back then in Albany. And someone knew the coach at UConn. And I got an interview and I got a job. And I said, well, if I can coach. So I coached lacrosse as a defensive coordinator. And first year I coached the freshman team and then defense the rest of the time and so I was like 22 years old coaching 21 year olds and I also coached basketball at the University High School so all the time the whole point for this is all the time I was going to grad school I was coaching so I was constantly how does any of this stuff I'm studying apply and how can I make it useful and how can it help me coach and win you know and so that's kind of how I ended up in it I it just kind of snowballed. If I had, I had no ambition to work in the game of golf. Um, but by the age of eight or nine, I was in love with sports. I mean, I was totally enthralled with balls at a very early age. I love sports. I love team sports. 
And by the time you get older and you realize, well, it doesn't depend on anybody else, I kind of got into tennis and then golf. And, you know, golf, what happens in tennis is, is you get better. You could only play other guys who were your skill level or it wasn't a very fun game. And I had gotten good enough to win like the Farmington and Boar's Head Club Championships and City Championships in tennis. But, you know, you had three guys you could play with that were enjoyable. I mean, skill-wise. And so I started playing golf. And gosh, golf, you just play with everybody. And it doesn't matter their skill level. I mean, to this day, I play with everybody because I don't care how good they are. It's just they're good guys. And your buddies, you can go out and play with them. And... You can practice on your own. It's outdoors. If you go on vacation in tennis, the tennis court looks exactly the same with a curtain around it. No matter how beautiful a place you're in, it looks the same. Golf, God, every place you go is beautiful and outdoors and different and the conditions are different. So, I mean, golf has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. But I'm, you know, there's still a side of me that's in disbelief that I've spent my life working with the people I've worked with or that people are still flying in from around the world, you know, to talk about how they can get better and win championships. So, you know, I've had a lot of fun. That's for darn sure. Real quick, I want to remind y'all that the VSGA VIP golf card is available at VSGA.org. The VSGA VIP golf card is a great investment that gives you access to great courses all across the Commonwealth at a great rate. And one of the other things that Dr. Bob and I talked about, which didn't make its way into the podcast, but is a little bit in the annual meeting video that I referenced at the beginning of the show, was junior golf and parents getting out with their kids. This year, the VSGA has begun a partnership with Youth on Course. A Youth on Course membership for juniors ages 6 through 18 offers juniors the opportunity to play participating Youth on Course clubs for just $5. There's a growing list of clubs here in Virginia and over 1,400 clubs across the country. And as a Youth on Course member, you can play any of those courses for that rate. It's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, it's a great program that is really going to expand golf for juniors across the state and the country. And I hope you'll learn more by visiting the page on our website, vsga.org slash youth on course. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Rotella. What has been, so when COVID hit and, you know, lots of things were getting shut down left, right, and center, and golf was kind of, golf is staying open. What are you thinking? I mean, this is, I'm talking public golf, not necessarily tour golf at the, at the time. What are you thinking as a golfer? And then number two, what are you thinking as a psychologist? Well, I would say I didn't think much about it as a golfer. I thought more about it as a sports psychologist. Um, the first thing crossed my mind is I had a heart ablation six months before it, and they really didn't want me traveling as much, particularly with this virus. So I wasn't going to travel as much, didn't know what it would do to my career with pros. Um, and I was happy to find out that people were still, you know, that probably more people drove here than flew at first. As time went on, people got more and more comfortable flying on commercial flights. To my amazement, they kept telling me, oh, the airports are packed, like Charlotte and Atlanta. They said, are just, you wouldn't believe how busy they are. 
Um, the middle seats were usually open. Um, people were in mass and tell me it's pretty safe. And then, you know, some of the pros fly in on private planes and some of the high-end amateurs I work with, you know, same thing. So, I mean, it hasn't had much of an impact on my career. The other thing that happened is I just finished a new book and we did it on Zoom and, you know, it, Zoom worked great. I mean, my co-author was very happy with it. Um, and I was work, breaking in a new co-author because my previous co-author, Bob Cullen, who was great to work with, decided that he was going to um, go into photography. And uh, he said, I can do photography for an hour and a half a day and then go play golf. Working on a book is like a full-time job. I don't want a full-time job. So we've gone on, and a guy, Roger Schiffman, who worked for Golf Digest for years and done Nicholas books and a lot of golf books. And he loved it because on Zoom you can tape record. And so, you know, I thought it ended up working very efficiently. And we've sent our first draft to the publisher. So between that and clients, it kept me pretty busy. And I, I probably played more golf than I've played in a long time. I've played a lot fewer tournaments because there have been a lot fewer tournaments. And, you know, I haven't really loved the idea of going on the road and staying in hotels at this point. But... Um, yeah, I've played a lot of golf, it's, um, and the, the course has been busy, so it's been great. How much, when you're playing now, how much of your own advice do you follow? I think anyone who's played with me would say I probably live it pretty nicely. Um, but, I mean, you know, when people ask me, did I get good at the mental game from becoming a sports psychologist, I go, I don't think so. I mean, I went to Catholic schools and the first day of practice in every sport, the priest would sit us down. In front of the whole team would say, if anybody loses their composure, gets in a fight, swears, or goes nuts, you'll be immediately suspended for two weeks. And if it happens a second time, you won't be playing for the year. And I had a family unit, you know, mom and dad, probably totally agreed with that and would totally support that priest. Um, you know, like when I hear kids talk about breaking clubs or something, I go, well, I mean, my, if I had played golf, my parents would have just said, you break that club, you're never getting another one, let alone going to pay you to go to a tournament. So, I mean, I think we learned a lot of those lessons in team sports from, you know, coaches that were very disciplined um, with us. And, you know, like I was a quarterback. I mean, you had to have, you learned to play. You, if, if you listen to Mike of any football game, you're going to hear the quarterbacks talking about playing one down at a time, one play at a time. You know, never mind the darn scoreboard. Do this on every play. The outcome will take care of itself. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's been around a long time. Um, if you went back to Lombardi, Red Auerbach, John Wooden, Dean Smith, if you went to most of the great coaches, Bear Bryant, I mean, they were talking about this stuff a long, long time ago. They just didn't talk about it necessarily in the same language, but it's always what athletes have done. Now, I think the difference is, you know, I always thought the difference was, like as a quarterback, you were somewhere staying calm and cool before the game. Linebackers might have been, you know, breaking a door down or something getting themselves jacked. But I did a tuck years ago, and a guy who was captain of the uh, 
Tom Scott, who was an All-American at Virginia in lacrosse and basketball. And he was the captain of the Giants, New York Giants football team. And he was the middle linebacker. And when I finished my talk, he came up and talked to me. And the first thing he said, oh, I just loved your talk. And I went, really? He said, yeah, when I was the captain of the defense for the New York Giants, I always broke our defensive huddle by telling everyone to just relax. He says, some of our guys got too amped up and they couldn't just react. I wanted guys to react. I didn't want them to think. And if they got too jacked up, they would do dumb things. And so we had a great talk about it. And I think I worked with the Eagles the year they won the Super Bowl a few years ago. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's like you got to play the game, you know. And so, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff has been around for a long time. But, you know, I think it's much more something that people are comfortable talking about. I think, you know, most teams now have someone working with them on their heads. You know, golfers... I mean, whether they work with me or a sports psychologist, um, I'm not being presumptuous, but I know from them telling me, most of them have read one or many of my books. I mean, they talk about it. They're comfortable talking about it. They've had their caddies read my books, and their caddies are talking to them about during a round. Golf is so much about managing expectations and your expectation of honestly going back to golf is not a game of perfect and realizing that it's about managing your misses and I think the answer whether it's COVID or not is learning to play in the present moment and I think where it's tricky for people is you know at night we want people to visualize and imagine themselves playing great and seeing themselves shooting low or winning the masters you know as you know I'm very into dreams and having big ideas but everybody I work with we teach when you go to the first tee you got to take your expectations and throw them in a trash can and it's pretty much what life is about you've got to program your brain to be comfortable doing great stuff but when you're doing it you can't be comparing how you're doing to those expectations you have to just go out there and play one shot at a time and so I don't really want people to have any expectations once they're on the golf course. I think that leads to all kinds of problems and issues for people with getting up and down and disappointed and discouraged. It's like, you know, you hear people will say, well, I was seven over after 13 and now I know I can't break 80, so I just give up and quit on the round. Well, stop having some standard you've made up in your head that's going to make it good or bad today or enjoyable or not enjoyable. And I, I don't think it's just in golf. I think it ruins people's lives. I think we've tended to put, it's like young kids. If you're going to play golf, well, you're going to play golf because you want to play in college and then you want to play on tour. And I would say most great players, I just did an interview with Tom Kite and he was telling the story how his first lesson with Harvey Pennick, I am doing it for my next book. He says, you know, Harvey, we're walking to the first tee, to the range for my first lesson with Harvey Pennick. And Harvey asked him something about his golf. He says, yeah, well, I, I want to play professional golf, Mr. Pennick. And he said, Mr. Pennick looked at him and said, well, first we have to make the JV high school team. <laughs> and Tom says, Harvey certainly was big on being a big dreamer and having big ideas. 
But his point was, well, we got to make the JV high school team first. And then we have to make the high school team. And then we maybe can play in college and we got to make a college team somewhere. You know, and it's like, let's take this, let's slow down a little bit. And I think in golf, it's like, well, no, I got to hit the first tee shot first. And then we got to hit the second shot. And, you know, we got to play this hole. And then we got to play the second hole. And is it easy? To, I mean, the combination my players are after is practicing a lot and then going to the golf course and just get out of results and be into the process of playing one shot at a time. And, you know, living in the present, I mean, we know that's where peace of mind exists. You know, I don't care what it is you do in life. If you get ahead of yourself or if you're beating yourself up and being behind yourself, it just puts pressure on. So, you know, stress doesn't happen because of the virus. Stress happens because people are worrying about how this is going to affect their life, what it's going to do to their life, what what is going to mess up their life. And then they start feeling sorry for themselves is why has this stuff happened to me? I don't know how many athletes, just the University of Virginia, they're like absolutely convinced. Why did my season get canceled? You know, like the basketball, we're defending national champion. Lacrosse, defending national champion. This has never happened before. And I tell them, no, like my junior year in college, the Kent State shootings happened. And they wiped out the second half of our season. I was like, nope, it's happened before. And you know what? Within a week or two, it was over and it didn't matter and it didn't affect our lives and life goes on. And and I think you have to have a lot of that. I mean, you do the best you can do with what you've got. Crazy things, just like in golf, crazy things happen in life. Things that you couldn't anticipate. And, you know, it's it's funny. I was, I was texting with Joey Logano, a, a NASCAR driver. And he had a chance to win the championship back-to-back years last week. And, you know, something happened to his tires. And I was rewarding him. Man, you really drove to win. You drove drive great. Yeah, I just wish I could understand what happened to these tires. And the response is the same. Is you can only control the things that you can control. And you did a great drive job of driving to win with a great attitude and mindset. And it wasn't your turn. I don't know why. And neither do you. And it's like, it keeps coming back to you just can control what you can control. So get your head in the right place on every shot till you run out of holes. Like Dustin could have shot the same number at Augusta on Sunday and had someone, maybe Cam Smith, shoot 62 and beat him. And we would have been asking Dustin, what happened? How could you only shoot that score on that golf course with that setup in those conditions? And so, I mean, you kind of have to live with it. And you know, if someone says, does that stink that you have to live with it? I guess so. But I mean, the bottom line is there's a lot of things. You have to live with your parents. You have to live with your genetic. You know, you have to live with good breaks and bad breaks. And we tend to want to really remember all the bad breaks and you know, not look at all the good breaks that we've had in life and happened to us. And, yeah, I mean, it's like my dad's dad got killed in a marble quarry accident when he was nine and a half years old. And him and his old sister, his older sister, who was 11, 
She got sent to a seamstress shop to work full time. She never went to high school. And he got to go to high school, but he got sent to a barber shop. And I was like, never heard him complain about it. It was like, that's my life. And they got into being able to take care of their six siblings that were younger than them. And it's like, that was our responsibility. And and I think that's what you have to deal with. That's what's cool about the game of golf. It's, no one's going to give it to you. You talked a little bit about you didn't think you would ever get into golf. And you you never had any ambition to get into golf. I, I, I kind of want to pull out what golf has given you that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And I would ask, if you can... Could you do it in the form of a letter to golf? Dear golf, <laughs> something like that. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, well, first of all, I, I can't believe the wonderful people that I've met and got to know. Uh, I can't believe the people that have been so wonderful in golf to my mom and dad. Um, I mean players who would talk on the phone to my dad, you know, when he was a hundred years old. Um, my dad, through what golf has done for me, my mom and dad took up golf at 64 and played for the next 30 something years. My dad was still playing at a hundred. We had his hundred birthday party at the golf club, which he never even dreamed of being a member of. Um, you know, I think of for my daughter, who got to play golf at the state level and on Virginia state teams and at the University of Notre Dame and finance half of her college education. Um, and the people she got to meet because people are at my home that she visited with. Um, and, and golf has a lot of really nice people. You know, it's hard to know what it is about golf, whether it's you enforce your own rules or what, I don't know. But a lot of good people. You have to get along with people in golf, you know. Um, my wife, you know, has had a ball. I mean, she's got to go to the Masters. We've been part of Ryder Cup teams, which means you're in the locker room and inside the ropes. And I've had a ball with Ryder Cup teams, but for my wife, it's probably even bigger, bigger thrill because she got to be in the locker room and she got to be inside the ropes and hang around all these people. I've got to have a lot of fun. I mean, I always knew I wanted to coach. So, I mean, I look at myself as a coach who just coaches people's heads um, more than I look at myself as a sports psychologist probably. Um, I've gotten to write books in a sport that people buy books. But anyways, I've had a lot of fun with it and it's, you know, we'll be forever grateful. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Golf in the Commonwealth and big thanks to Dr. Rotella. I hope you'll take a second to subscribe to this podcast and rate it wherever you're listening. New episodes are released every other week and new platforms to access the show are being added frequently, especially here at the start. So keep an eye out for those as well. Remember to visit your VSGA member club to renew your VSGA membership for 2021 or visit VSGA.org and renew online. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the fairway soon.